Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and website, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. So only like three years ago that I kind of had a bit of an aha moment where I was like, you know what? I'm turning 40 soon. I've always wanted to do something creative. I've always been told, either outwardly told or else it was just assumed that it was not a career path that was responsible. But I thought I'm just going to try because, you know, I just want to do something that I love. You know, you only live once. And so I just started really small and it's grown to what it is today. Welcome to Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being, as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Imprint. I am very excited to share my conversation with you today. It is a great lesson, an example of how it is still possible 
to build a brand and business quickly. You know, so many people say it's really hard to do this these days because of the algorithm, but today's guest shows that it doesn't have to be that way. So come listen to my conversation with Rachel Donner, who has fast become a globally celebrated Australian furniture designer, um, curating and creating artful objects for the home. This is a very open and honest and generous um, conversation with Rachel. She has shared so much of behind the scenes of her business, how she managed to get it growing without having to get outside funding, some of the really big lessons that she's learned in dealing with suppliers, how she has um, and how and why she continues to manage her own Instagram account and how she's also built up her team. So today she has really, you know, her, her pieces are featured in the homes of and the projects of leading interior designers around the world. She's had a brand shouted out on Goop. Um, she really has seen so much success, but uh, you can definitely see the, you know, the hard work that has gone into it and it's very much deserved. So I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Rachel as much as I did, please. Listen and enjoy now. Hi, Rachel. I am so excited to chat with you. I have been watching your journey with admiration, fascination and excitement because it's so wonderful to see, um, you know, a brand, an Australian brand, really just grow, experiencing the kind of growth that you have. And I've just got so many questions because it feels like you've just kind of come out of nowhere and which I'm sure you haven't. Nobody does. I have. Um, no, I but, actually have. <laughs> I have come out um, of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm seeing your products, your designs um, everywhere. So let's I like to start at the beginning because I, I I'm so fascinated to sort of see what is this thread? What is this journey that you've been on? to that informs where you are today because I think that there are always pieces of the puzzle that kind of add up so yeah. can you just share a little bit about where you grew up were you creative as a kid and I guess those kind of high school years where you're sort of thinking what am I going to do when I leave school so let's start there yes for sure so I grew up in a family my parents are both um academics um my mum is a lawyer. My dad is a professor. He's got a doctorate there. Um, there was a huge focus on sort of academia and being well-read and, all, you know, their friends and social circle were very, lots of very intellectual conversation. Um, so I was, I was brought up in that environment where meaning was, you know, everything was about sort of finding meaning and, um, and, you know, deeper sort of thinking. And so that was kind of the context of, of how my parents raised me and my siblings. Um, I was always a very imaginative, creative child. I expressed that a lot through how I dressed as a kid. Um, and my parents, my mother encouraged it. She would let me sort of, you know, pick my own clothes as strange as they were. And um, she would take me to fabric shops and let me sort of choose wild fabrics. And, and she would make dresses for me in, in the fabrics that I would choose. So I was very expressive in how I dressed as a kid. Um, and I always had a really big imagination. So I would, you know, I would read or I would watch movies and I would just kind of really imagine myself in those places. And I had a very rich kind of um, imaginative life, I guess, as a child. Um, but Throughout schooling, I went to a very sort of, um, I guess, 
academic focused school. So I didn't really have much of a creative outlet. Um, and I always really enjoyed the creative, but I didn't really have too much of an opportunity to explore it or express it. Um, I did have family members sort of in my extended family. So my grandmother, my aunt, who were very creative sort of flamboyant personalities who had beautifully like cre- like collected homes. They were real collectors of art, of pottery, of ceramics, of quirky things from travel. And I always kind of was very inspired by that and I felt very connected to that. Um But through schooling, I mean, even, you know, work experience in year 10, I actually, funnily enough, went to work for Moran, who are a furniture company who are now, I don't think they they exist anymore, but I wanted to get into fashion design um, when I was younger and we couldn't get a placement in fashion. So I went for furniture and I was like, this is so boring. Um, And I wasn't really, I kind of, I mean, I enjoyed the experience, but I I guess not having your own home and being a kid, you don't really care about furniture very much. So it's funny that I actually did work experience though for a furniture business. Um, And then, you know, in year 12 or year 11, we had our careers counselling to pick sort of what subjects you do, um, what university course, and I was sort of pushed towards occupational therapy. So that was kind of, I mean, there was, you know, a creative career wasn't really considered a legitimate career or a career that you can um, support a family on or support yourself on. So I, I was definitely encouraged from through school and, um, in all areas to sort of pursue a more, um, you know, I don't know what the word is, but a more sort of typical career path. So I was, so I went, I got into occupational therapy after school, um, and I hated it. <laughs> it wasn't for me. I just found it so boring. Um, so I, I didn't last very long in that. Um, and I ended up um, doing some some work, sort of volunteering for a fashion design company in Melbourne. Um, I was involved in the Melbourne in like the Melbourne Fashion Week. Um, so I was quite involved in fashion, and I ended up applying for a fashion design degree, which was very um, selective and you had to put a portfolio together. And I did that without any help, like just me in my, you know, my bedroom kind of just pulling things together. Very, I mean, I've still got it actually. It's, it's like, I literally just cut bits of fabric and stuck it on like a paper, like a paper of a person. And I stuck clothes on her sort of thing, like very, very basic. And I actually got accepted, which was wild. Um, but at the last minute, I, I kind of got talked out of it. Everyone, everyone around me was saying, you know, you can't make, you can't make a career out of this. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to be able to support your family. It's not something that you can get work in very easily. So I feel like I was constantly, um, torn between really wanting to do something creative, but also the practicality of needing to sort of earn a living and being, kind of told and seeing around me that that wasn't a way to make to earn a living. So, um, and that was, you know, and then after, so following that, I started working in corporate in, I studied marketing and I went um, and worked in marketing and, um, account, you know, account management with News Corp for like 10 years. Um, and I was good at it. I, I was very successful there. I was sort of like topping the state for five years in a row. Like I was really good at sort of sales and marketing. So I kind of, that gave me a lot of like confidence that this is something I can do. Um, and I stayed there for a while cause I was, I was, I did really well there in terms of like, I got a lot of recognition and I was, you know, 
I won a lot of awards. Um, and then following on from that, um, when I had my second child, I wasn't able to continue to work full time in that sort of environment. So I started my own marketing business because that was all I knew. Um, and I did that for about seven years. So that was also you know, I think I, I enjoyed the creative side of it. I was, I happened to be good at it, but it definitely didn't, I didn't feel like I was put on this world to, do, you know, to put, I was put in this world to do that. It didn't feel like it was my calling. Um, and so it was only during COVID, so only like three years ago that I kind of had a bit of an aha moment where I was like, you know what, I'm turning 40 soon. Um, I've always wanted to do something creative. I've always been told either like, you know, outwardly told or else it was just assumed that it was not a career path that was responsible. Um, but I thought I'm just going to try because, you know, I just want to be, I just want to do something that I love. Um, you know, you only live once. And so I just started really small and it's grown to what it is today. So it's, it is a bit of a story, but I feel like the story does lead to, you know, understanding the story does give you some insight into how I've ended up doing what I'm doing now. Oh, I love that so much. Okay. So let's like, let, I want to get into all the details because I think that your story and what you've shared, I mean, many people have had that experience. You know, I hear this all the time when I speak to people of people going into careers that are safe and secure and um, they do that, but they sort of feel that like, it's just, it's actually not the really what I want to do. And I think that that moment of when you do have children and you start to think, okay, this is like the next chapter and, you know, I don't have to keep going down that path and I get to choose something else. But I mean, not everyone then goes on to create what you've created. So I'd love to kind of get a little bit more into the detail of, First of all, so what was your first idea, I guess? How did you execute on that? And then start to go into how you think it's managed to grow so quickly. Okay, so it started out as me selling vintage and antique pieces that I loved. Um, I was very, I've always been quite a, determined strong-willed sort of person and so I wasn't I I think that the that the success because a lot of people especially at that time were doing that it was a very saturated market on Instagram people opening up accounts and selling you know um secondhand furniture so I think that for me what what put me aside from everyone else is that I would select pieces that I really genuinely liked. And some of them were a bit left afield. They were a bit quirky. They weren't what everyone else was sourcing. Um, they had something that I saw in them that were that wasn't necessarily typical. I certainly wasn't selling pieces that, um, you know, like mid-century modern, like everyone else was doing. I was just picking whatever I liked, whatever drew my eye in. I didn't really give, you know, I, I guess I kind of was different in that I didn't really give too much um, attention to, you know, who the designer was and, and that and that kind of making it special. It wasn't about that for me. It was about this piece is epic. I don't care if it came from like someone's grandfather's, you know, work, you know, like shared and someone who doesn't have a big name has made it. You know, like for me, I'm not at all phased by um, big names and, you know, glitz and that sort of thing. So it wasn't about that, whereas I think for a lot of other sellers it was all about um, where the piece came from and what, you know, who made it and who the name was. And for me, I just kind of thought boring, like some of that stuff, fine, it's by someone who's famous, but 
I don't really like it. So I'm going to just put pieces out like a mirror that I'd find that had the most amazing frame. And it was, you know, it was old, but it was who knows where it was from. It wasn't, it wasn't marked by any particular maker. It was just something that was unique and one off, um, but it was special. And so I think that that's kind of where I stood out from the pack is that I really kind of stayed true to what I loved and what I, um, you know, putting forward pieces that I saw something beautiful in that weren't necessarily what everyone else was, was, was sharing. Um, and so I think that's kind of where it wasn't intentional. It's just kind of how I, it wasn't, there wasn't a strategy behind that in any way, shape or form. It was just me really doing what I love and, and finding pieces that I was really drawn to that I wanted to have in my own home, um, and sharing those. And I think that that is what, um, you know, drew me apart from others in that market. Cause it was, I mean, I'm not sure now, but I know at the time it was very, it was a very saturated market. Um, so that's kind of what I think gave me that um, point of difference. And very, very quickly, like honestly, within the first week I started, and I started with like a hundred followers, friends and family. And then within a week I had some really significant, big, iconic names in the industry reach out and say, can you source for me? Can you show me your catalogs before you show anyone else? Um, and they would just buy the entire catalog. Like they would just buy me out every single week, um, which was quite it blew me away and it also um gave me a huge a huge amount of confidence that maybe I'm onto something here maybe I've got some talent some eye that others recognize and appreciate and so that was a a big big step for me in terms of realizing that maybe I'm onto something and maybe I can make make a career out of this so so can I just ask cuz I do get lots of people um who like take my courses and things and they're really interested in having like a vintage shop or a secondhand, you know, furniture shop. Can you share, so how were you finding these pieces? Like, were you just kind of going on Facebook marketplace? Were you going to Etsy? Like, where were you looking to find these pieces? So really everywhere. I mean, I'm, I love a deep dive. I love getting stuck down a rabbit hole of, you know, of, finding amazing things it's sort of it's part of the fun is just the the find so it was a mix of um auction houses um even ebay sometimes um antique shops i would literally go into like really old antique shops just when i was you know you know around like in the country in victoria or just locally and just kind of really kind of like digging through um some flea markets that we have here in melbourne that i would go to every sunday and sort of search through um it was a real mix i would get some pieces in from overseas through vendors that i had that i had previous relationships with because i had sourced for myself because i've always enjoyed this but i've done it only for myself so i did have contacts who i would reach out to and say hang on show me your full list, you know, show me everything because now I might actually bring in more instead of just like one piece for my own home. So it was a real mix um, of where I'd get pieces from. Um, and even sometimes I would find smaller sellers who were, you know, who didn't necessarily have the same aesthetic as me but that have one piece that was like amazing and I would buy it from them because I know that my audience would love it and so I would then resell it. So it was really a lot of kind of just hustling, just kind of being everywhere, having your eyes everywhere. And for me, that was a real joy. Like I would rather spend my 
my evenings scrolling and finding beautiful things than watching Netflix, for example. Like for me, it's a real, um, a love, like I love it. So it was, it wasn't work. It was, it was a real joy. And so I think that because I was enjoying it so much, um, I was able to sort of spend all that time because it took a lot of time to find something special. Um, but I, I, that was, that was where the fun was for me. So I loved it. So to get practical for a second, um, did you, had you saved up some money from your time with your business or working with News Corp that you kind of went, okay, I'm going to save up a certain amount of money, use that money to buy the inventory. I mean, shipping furniture is incredibly expensive. You know, if you're buying things in from overseas, that's very expensive. What was your approach with that? I started with nothing. I didn't use any of my savings. I, I've got four kids, so I, didn't, I was very aware that I did not want to dip into any of my personal savings or funds because I have big responsibilities and big bills to pay in terms of school, everything, you know, having a big family and everything that comes with it. So I was extremely conservative when it came with, um, with, how I, where, with what I spent and how I spent. Um, at the very beginning, I kept like a very basic sort of Excel spreadsheet of what I bought for and then what I sold it for to make sure that I was always making a profit. And then I would reinvest the profits into buying more stock. So at the very beginning, I never bought big furniture pieces. I would buy mirrors, I'd buy candle holders, I'd buy, you know, decorative bowls that would not cost a lot to ship in. And I would make sure that I had you know, gotten the best price I possibly could for it. And I would only have sort of, you know, between maybe, I don't know, five and 10 pieces a week that I would have gotten in. So I would have perhaps, you know, at the very beginning, I would have outlaid maybe $50 in all honesty, in all honesty, and then, you know, sold it for, I don't know, 100 or 150 and then taken that profit and reinvested. So there was, you know, I'm very conservative when it comes to, um, when it comes to spending and when it comes to sort of money management um, and and that, that that's kind of, you know, that mentality I take with me to, into the business now, which is a very different story, but I use that now. I certainly don't take any loans. Um, I, I, I spend within my means um, very kind of on top of what's coming in and what's going out and where I sit, um, where the business sits financially. So I've always been very responsible in that sense. Um, and so there was never a big outlay. There was never any capital that I had to, to work with. It was literally, you know, I'd go to the market with a hundred dollar note in my wallet and I would buy maybe five things for $20 each. And then I would sell them each for 120 or whatever it was. Um, and, and that's how I started. I literally started without any capital behind me, without any dip into any savings. Um, and I'm really proud of that. I'm actually really proud of that. And I encourage others. I know people often ask me, like, how do you do it? You know, do you have to get lo loans? To, and I was like, no way. Like, you know, always work within your means. Never spend more than you can afford to lose. Um, and you know, just go slowly. And I think that if you go slowly, um, you know, you build a sustainable business and you, you've got that peace of mind as well, that you're not getting yourself into debt. You're not getting yourself into trouble. You're, you know, you're working within very safe parameters, um, where you can afford to like that something doesn't sell and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to hurt you or the business. So I think I've always been quite, um, quite responsible financially and, and quite financially, um, yeah, I guess conservative and aware. So at what point then did you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to start designing my own pieces and getting them made? Share a little bit about that part of the story. 
So I actually um, was in the process of getting a chair uh, imported from the US for myself. And I I just, I was literally at the same time as starting the business, I was doing that for myself. Like this chair that I couldn't find in Australia, I found it overseas. Um, I ended up finding who the, um, who the whole, like the, like the wholesale arm of the business who sold this chair and I was in contact with them and I was, I was going to bring in two. And then what I did was I posted a photo of it on my Instagram and I said, I, um, does anyone want like this chair? I could get a couple more in. And I think I had like so many people wanted it. Um, and so I just thought, hang on, this is an opportunity. And so what I, so what I, I mean, I'm a bit of a risk taker like that. I feel like I'm a calculator risk taker. I'm not silly, but I'm certainly, I'm certainly not scared of taking um, calculator risks. And so I thought if I can open this up, potentially get a few more um, and then, you know, sell them at the retail price but buy them at wholesale, then I can make some margin here. Um, and so I think I sold 58 chairs in one day or something wow. wild. Like for me that was like it was crazy. Like I remember I was just like, oh, my God. And I sold them prior to them them arriving so I hadn't so I was able to um get the payment for the chairs before I had outlaid the payment for the chairs if that makes sense so that I was able to sort of put the cash into the purchase as opposed to having to lay out for them um and I remember like there was you know with the terms of of buying them from the from the manufacturer there was you know there were certain terms and I was like I didn't want to ever be in a position where if the chairs didn't show up or something happened because it was my first time importing um I would owe customers money and so I actually put all that money into an account I didn't touch it and I said to myself I'm not going to touch this until I'm not going to re- I'm not going to do anything with it until the chairs are in the customer's hands because I always want to be able to refund the customer if this all goes downhill so from that perspective I felt that it was very safe um and I I purchased I think in the end it was a container or containers worth of chairs so it was I can't remember maybe 200 or something ridiculous like for me that was huge a number of chairs that were all pre-purchased um and and that's kind of that. And then, and then I guess from there, I was talking with this company and I said, well, can, you know, what else can we do? I mean, I've just sold an entire container load of chairs without having to outlay anything because the customer has paid in advance. What else can we bring into Australia that we can't get in Australia that I, that I really like and that I think would sell well? And so we sort of built out a couple more styles and that's where I had the opportunity to design the Grace Dining Chair, which was one of my first ever designs. And that is, that is the now one like with a the bestseller. Nob- so the knobbly balls? That no, the that's with, with the, the rounded back. The, it's the dining okay. chair oh, with the yes. rounded yeah, woven yeah. back. Yeah. So I designed that. I designed the um, Bolini coffee table, which was like a um, irregular shaped top with the three balls underneath. Um, there were a few sort of initial timber pieces that I designed, um, and I I bought them in in very small batches at the beginning. And I just was, I didn't have a website. So it was just my Instagram. I'd put it out and say, look, I've got 10 of these coming and everything got snatched up. Like people, I feel like by then I had a real sort of, um, it was small, but it was a cult following. People were very engaged. I remember like looking through my followers and thinking, I have chatted with every single one of these people, you know, like every single person in my following of like a thousand people, even I had like a a one-on-one relationship with, we had chatted in DMs or email or whatever it was. Like, I really felt like my following was, was very, um, connected. Like it was a really, it was a really connected group. And so I sort of, um, and, and we would chat, I would chat on DMs people all the time. So I got a real sense of what people liked and what people wanted. Um, and so I was able to 
sort of really slowly start bringing in pieces um, that I would that I would design or some of it that I didn't design like the for example the chair um, the cord lounge chair the with the sort of the um, cantilevered arm that's not my own but that was something from a company in the US um, that I was able to bring in and import to Australia so it was yeah it was I think it grew because I said yes to new opportunities. I think things came my way where um, that other people would probably be very scared of, but I thought, why not? By then I had enough sort of profit in the business, even if it was $10,000 that I was like, I'm prepared to lose this on this, on this, you know, like I always have the attitude of don't spend on something unless you're prepared to, you know, in this kind of scenario, unless you're prepared to lose it, like in terms of like um, on new ideas or on new things that aren't certain, I always think don't spend any amount that you're not prepared to lose. So I guess my tolerance as I had a little bit more profit in the business grew and I was prepared to sort of spend a little bit more and a little bit more um, and and bring in new stock. I've always had a model where I do small batches and I try and sell and well, now I don't even try. Now things just sell out before it arrives. So containers will arrive and the entire container sold already. So I think that's a good model in terms of um, from a cash flow perspective, um, having pieces sold before they arrive. But that is just the nature of the game because I don't get in big batches and because people realize that it's limited. And if they don't buy from this batch, they're going to wait another six months for the next batch. So if someone wants it, they'll have to sort of get in. So that's kind of worked really. I mean, it wasn't intentional at first. It was kind of the only way for it to work at the beginning. Um, and that sort of, it's a model that um, with a lot of pieces we still have because that's the reality of the of the manufacturer's capability in terms of production. You know, they can't make hundreds. We don't go with, you know, these huge manufacturers who can make, you know, a thousand pieces and we don't want to either. So we do get small batches in and I think that kind of, um, that model has has meant that we're able to sort of manage the financials a lot easier. So um, a few kind of practical questions again, because I think, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, we, we see these glossy brands and, you know, beautiful Instagram, and it's so fascinating, I think, to learn a little bit more behind the scenes. So when you're, um, you know, effectively importing this furniture in from the US, I mean, that's very expensive, though, like the shipping costs to bring something into Australia. Did you find, was the price point of the furniture low enough that then it could kind of absorb the shipping costs? Or were you then um, sea freighting? I'm just curious, because I know that like, within Australia, it's so expensive to import any kind of products because of the distance. It's different, you know, like if you're within Europe or you know, other countries yeah. that are closer? Well, at the very beginning, I was working with an agent. I don't anymore, but I was working with an agent who would do all the importing for me. And they would also, they were like a middleman. So they would also speak with the manufacturers. Like I, at the very beginning, I had no contact with manufacturers directly. And they would give me a price per chair, for example, which was my wholesale price. And that actually included lands into Australia. So I never saw bills for containers. I never saw freight costs. I just was given this chair is going to cost you $600 lands in your warehouse in Australia, for example. Um, and so I never had to deal with any of that at the very beginning. Now I obviously do, but for me, I just kind of worked off that. So the price landed was $600. Um, these are my costs. This is the margin. The price is X amount. So, um, it can seem very overwhelming. And I think that if I didn't have that first experience of having um, an agency do it all, do it for me and manage all the 
the bits and pieces for me, I would have probably found it very overwhelming and felt very out of my depth. But I had like a one, you know, one person who I dealt with and they really, I mean, there, there were pros and cons to doing it that way, definitely. And I wouldn't do it like that anymore. But it was certainly um, a softer start. Like it was, it was easier to begin in that way because I wasn't dealing with paperwork. I wasn't dealing with customs. I wasn't dealing with container availability and, and, you know, issues with, with, you know, docks and loading and this and that, like, I didn't have to deal with any of that. And so when, um, when you were creating these designs, were you just doing like sketches and sending it to them or were you having to get them, you know, technically drawn up in something like, I don't know, AutoCAD or, you know, some other sort of software program, um, how will you kind of create, you know, cause you're saying you're not, you don't come from a design background. And so I'm curious for someone who hasn't, yeah. how you've, you know, like you need to specify, you know, the, the height of the chair, the, you know, the thickness of the arms, like all of these yeah. different details, which is new territory really. Yes, it is. Um, when you work with excellent manufacturers who, who work for excellent companies, they actually can give a lot of input. So in terms of specs like that, so in terms of the design that I have to do, but in terms of, you know, seat height and the lean on a chair to make it comfortable and um, standards in terms of like the foot bar height on a stool or whatever it is, you can actually lean on on others for that kind of information. I certainly don't know that. I mean, now I do, but I didn't know that to start with because I was never trained in in furniture drawing. So what I would do at the very beginning is I would literally do a sketch. I, I probably have them still, like, I, and I'm not a great drawer, so it was very kind of messy. Um, I would sort of have a bit of a collage of like, I like this color timber. Um, I like this kind of weave. Um, I like this kind of shape. I want this kind of shape legs, and kind of pull together. Um, a lot of like reference images for different finishes and this and that. And then I would just send it through and then um, they would come back to me with a technical drawing and often a 3D render. I mean, now we do this in-house, so it's a bit different, but at the very beginning I would lean very heavily on the manufacturer to send through drawings and then make revisions. And I won't lie. I mean, at the very, the Grace chair, what it was then and what it is now are completely different products. The Grace chair at the very beginning, it was too narrow. The back was too upright. The weave was too like wasn't perfect. Um, we've made a lot of changes. Like structurally, we've changed it. We've it's it's you know now it's like it's a beautiful, comfortable chair. At the beginning, it was aesthetically very beautiful. So I feel like I did my job right. <laughs> so I was able to um, express what I wanted and get that. But from a comfort perspective, I didn't know the questions to ask. I didn't know um, that I could lean on manufacturers or others to to get that advice I didn't even know that a lean on a chair is important I mean I'm just I've got no idea I just thought a chair's a chair it's got a straight back but it actually doesn't it's got a lean on it so I didn't know any of this and so it's been a huge huge learning curve and we've had so many revisions of so many of our pieces um even now I mean we're I'm so whenever a customer um you know sits on it and gives any feedback or anything like that, we are straight back to the drawing board. So we really take feedback very, very seriously. And we're always, always trying to improve. And I feel like some of the pieces were perfected. Um, so like the Grace dining chair, no more revisions. Like we're very, very happy with it and it sells beautifully and it's, um, and it's a very comfortable, great chair. But then there are other pieces that we are still kind of working on. We're still working on how can we make this better? How can we make this more comfortable? How can we make, how can we get rid of a certain feature that isn't perfect or whatever it is so um 
yeah, at the, at the very beginning, um, you can lean on manufacturers, although I didn't necessarily as much as I could have. Um, so some pieces were, were, you know, they weren't perfect at the very beginning, you know, like our, our coffee tables at the beginning, we, you know, we, you know, we, we've had, you know, I mean, they actually, you know, the coffee tables were fine, but there were some pieces at the very beginning that we had some, you know, quality issues that we had some comfort issues. Um, and I think that's just normal and that's kind of to be expected. And I mean, we had entire batches arrive at the very beginning that were just, we had to get rid of, like they weren't sellable, you know, so we had to like return it to the manufacturer. So there's been a lot of really big, scary moments, you know, when you receive a container load and it's not okay to sell and you're like, what am I going to do? Firstly, I've spent a fortune on this. And secondly, I've got customers waiting for it and you can, you will not give it to a customer because it's not, you know? Um, so we've definitely had some real kind of disaster moments. I'm saying we, but it was only me (laughs) at the beginning. (laughs) So I've had some real disaster moments. Um, uh, and it's kind of, you know, you've, I've, I mean, I've always known that I'm a very resilient person, but this has kind of taken it to the next level in terms of just having to really problem solve, um, you know, be really assertive in terms of fighting for the outcomes that you need um, and and just pushing through and and also humility, I think, to the customer, just explaining to the customer, this is what's happened. I've always really believed in transparency and honesty and you know, being truthful, I think it's the only way to be. Um, and so I've always sort of said to the customer, this is what's happened. We, we received it and we can't sell it to you. It's not okay. Um, I'm going to have to refund you. I'm so, so sorry. And I think that the customer um, appreciates that, you know, like it's not what they want to hear because they've been looking forward to the chair arriving or whatever it is, but I'd always rather tell the truth than make up some convoluted story that just digs you into a hole because it's not, you know, you can't, I don't know, I feel like you can't ever, once you kind of, once you start, being dishonest, it's just kind of, it just, you just kind of got, can't get yourself out of it. So I, I would always rather sort of stay really honest, um, even if it's not a, a truth that's kind of easy to tell, because um, I just, you know, for me, the the brand and the reputation and and the, the values of the brand are really, really important to uphold. And one of those kind of key messages is just that we're good people, you know, that, that, um, that we're honest people and that honesty is really, really important. Um, and trying to, you know, to keep that transparency is, is like, I think critical for the survival of a business long-term. And so what about, um, I was going to ask you, so you said that you started out working with American, an American company, were they manufacturing in America or were they manufacturing offshore? And, then what was your journey to then going out and finding other suppliers or do you still work with that original supplier? So um, they were manufacturing offshore but they were bringing everything into America and then shipping to us. It was actually double shipping. So I was paying a fortune for pieces back then that I now um, have figured out how to Go, di- go get it directly from the manufacturer. I mean, even through that company, we were able to find a way that if I was able, if I ordered a certain minimum quantity, we could have it shipped direct from the manufacturer to me. Um, so that sort of changed. I don't work with them anymore. Um, that's a story for another day. It was, it was <laughs> just, yeah, it was, it, I was, yeah, I was, I was scammed really badly to put it um, lightly. It's like I could honestly write a book about my experiences, but they, they ended up, it was a really, it was a really serious um situation in the end where they were very dishonest and they um 
and it yeah it ended up kind of having to go through um legal and the like their their like headquarters of their business kind of got in because this guy that I was dealing with was being very dishonest and I didn't realize he was like the Australian um representative for the company so it went back to like his head office his you know he doesn't work there anymore um it all sort of the Australian arm sort of fell to pieces after that because um yeah pretty much he was a very dodgy person um but I didn't realize this so that was very very scary and some of my customers know this story because they actually that this happened and I told them I was very very upfront I said this has just happened you're not going to believe it but this is what's happened this person has actually told me x but this is actually not true um so yeah sorry it gets me a bit like upset oh to gosh. talk about it even because it was really it was it was it was breaking it was almost breaking point I feel like that's the one time that almost broke everything like broke me as a person just being just finding out that someone had been um lying to me for a long time about you know there was a lot of a lot of you know money involved I had I had outlaid a lot for this stock and he um was not a not a a moral person so it was yeah that was really really scary um but yeah so we I stopped working with him obviously after that all blew up um and and ended up working directly with manufacturers after that myself so that kind of burnt me a little bit um and I just decided I'm not going to go through third parties anymore because I sort of lost my my trust I wanted to work directly I didn't want a middleman anymore I wanted to work directly with the manufacturer and finding manufacturers has itself been a big process like a um a real trial and error um and I think now I'm in a good spot I've found some fa- some excellent manufacturers who work with really reputable brands and produce really quality pieces like really high quality pieces but we've had our duds you know absolutely I've had my duds who I don't work with anymore who we sort of had a small shipment come from and it's just not okay um and the quality was just subpar and so it's definitely been a bit of trial and error and I and I'm not sure now in hindsight how I could have avoided that I feel like you you know you've got to just try something um I always, you know, suggest start with really small quantities just to sort of test the quality and see. You also sometimes get small quantities and they're great and then you order a bigger quantity and they're not great anymore. So it's kind of, it's hard to know. It's really, it's a bit of a risky game at the very beginning, kind of trying to find, you know, reputable um, manufacturers who, who take you seriously and who give you high quality, you know, um, you know, final pieces. Um, now we have an external um, quality control company that checks all of our pieces before they come out. So, we're, you know, we love our manufacturers and they're excellent, but we, we, we want that extra sort of level of protection to make sure that every single batch is perfect. So we have that process in place now. Um, and I think that the best manufacturers that I've found at the moment have probably come from really, really generous people in the industry who have shared information with me. If I'm honest, um, I've had, you know, I've got good relationships with with um, with other people who do similar work to what I do and they have very, you know, I, I, I'm always eternally grateful when someone is prepared to share information like that because that's just, it, it just allows your business to really propel and really, you know, ex- you know expand when you have um, manufacturers who are, who are excellent. So, um, those people know who they are who have shared that with me because I'm so grateful and I tell them all the time. But I think that that's probably how I've kind of come to know some of my bigger manufacturers 
is through um, others in the industry who have been very generous with with sharing that that insight to me with me. Have you reached out to them to find out that information, or have they just kind of volunteered it with you? Um, one of them, I was, I just got chatting with her, and she's, yeah, she was, she was sort of, we were, we were looking at, um, we were looking at working together at one point. She was going to work in my team at one point, um, but it didn't work out. Um, and just through, through, she was so generous, like she knows who she is, but. Throughout the chats, I was just kind of going talking about some of the issues we have with, um, you know, with supply chain. And she said, why don't I introduce you to this person? I've worked with them. They do beautiful, um, you know, pieces, you know, a certain kind of category pieces. Let me introduce you. And she wanted nothing in return. I mean, she was so generous in terms of um, giving that to me. And we now have some of our key pieces made through this manufacturer. So it was, you know, that was just, it just you know, a couple of just just people who are very kind and generous um, and who want to help each other out. And I try and pay it forward as much as I can in terms of, you know, I mean, I get calls all the time or messages saying, can you mentor me? Can I speak to you for half an hour? Can I pick your brain on? And I always say yes. Like as much as I can, I always say yes because I, I started, I came from with zero industry experience, zero industry knowledge, like literally nothing. And I, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful and I remember the people that gave me a step up at the very beginning and who continue to give me a step up and I want to be that for others because it's just, you know, it doesn't take away to give to someone else. It doesn't take away from you to share with someone else. So there's, you know, I just think that if you can sort of share the love, why not? Yeah, no, beautiful. Um, and I did want to ask you as well, I, you know, you say on your website that you, you know, try and use sustainable practices, sustainable materials, fair trade. Um, how is that always been part of the journey? Is that a more recent part of the journey? How do you, you know, find those people? Is that hard? Is it challenging to find, you know, people that tick those boxes? Yeah, well, I didn't know much about sustainable practice in furniture making at the very beginning. I mean, I didn't know much about anything, to be honest, except that I just know what I love and that's it. Um, so at the very beginning, it was very much led by instinct. I mean, I am pretty much vegetarian. I don't, you know, I don't want to hurt any animal or any living thing um, for that matter. And I, you know, when we were making leather pieces, for example, at the very beginning, I would always say, how are you getting this leather? Because, I mean, I've been to... Asian countries, um, some, you know, third, no more like third world Asian countries. And I'm, and I see this sometimes the treatment of animals or you see it on the media and, you know, it, it like, it hurts my heart and I don't want to ever give any money to, to someone who is going to hurt an animal, um, to make something for me, like no way. And so I would ask these questions without under, like now I understand that there's actual certification and there's, you know, there's codes that they have to, you know, there's compliance and there, there are certain questions to ask. But at the very beginning, I didn't know that. I just knew that I refused to, to use leather that comes from an animal that, that isn't already, you know, that isn't already been killed and used for meat or whatever it is that like I didn't want any animal to die for my product. So I was very interested in terms of, um, timber I specified from the very beginning I only want to use recycled timber I don't want any trees cut down for my for my pieces even with feathers I was like how are you getting these feathers because you're not putting feathers in my pieces if you're hurting an animal to, to torture an animal to get feathers out of it so at the very beginning it was like it was instinctive questions that I would ask manufacturers um just based on my own kind of 
thought process of, hang on, how are you getting that material? How is that being dyed? What are you doing? But now I understand it's actually so much more than that. It's about it's about gas emissions. It's about travel, you know, travel time. I mean, it's also about very much about kindness to animals and kindness to the environment. But it's there's there's so much more that I didn't even realize went into production and manufacturing and freight and everything else. So now, um, in this our part of our screening process when we sort of look at new manufacturers and when we partner with any manufacturer is like the first question is always, you know, show us your show us you know your you know your um what you're certified for what you're you know what kind of groups you're part of in terms of um how you manufacture how you treat your staff how you pay your staff i mean it didn't even cross my mind um child labor for example so i never asked about that cuz i never thought of it but now that i'm much more aware i ask those you know those that's like basics in terms of we would never partner with anyone that's not paying their team fairly that's not you know manufacturing fair working conditions that's not using recycled pieces that's not you know not hurting any animal or any anything to to make our pieces so now i kind of understand that there are codes there are um you know certification titles there are like there's so much lingo that i didn't know at the beginning that now i understand so now i kind of know what questions to ask um i mean even things like you know um with the way fabric is treated in terms of sprays and things like that that you can some sprays are carcinogenic and some aren't um so there are these things that i never even thought of or knew about that now i'm i'm aware of um and so these are like all of our pieces are you know, have the highest level of certification in terms of kindness. Like for me, it's, you know, kindness to the planet, kindness to the people, kindness to animals, um, kindness to the environment. Like it's, you know, it's very, very important that our pieces are not derived from any place of har- of harming anyone or anything. Yeah. And I guess um, perhaps the certification answer answers that question in the sense that because I mean, there's a lot of trust that goes there. You can say to somebody, you know, do you pay your yeah. staff fairly? And they can say, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. Exactly. <laughs> but how do you trust that? How do yeah. you know that? Whereas I presume that is your your kind of benchmark then is that if you know they belong to a certain organization or have got a certain certificate, exactly. is that how you judge it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So okay. now, yeah. Um, so now we actually, I, now I know what to ask for. So, so absolutely. They've got to have certification. I mean, you know, I, um, I, even if I went and visited their warehouse, their factory, um, they could just have told the people who shouldn't be there to get out for my visit. Like there's no way of me knowing. And so I always, I, I rely on these, um, compliance bodies to do the checks and make sure that they're giving the certification to the right people. And then I rely on that and trust that. Mm, yeah, no, great. Really, really helpful, I think, for anyone who is, you know, trying to grow this kind of business. So what does your business look like today? I mean, as you've mentioned, you've had, you know, quite um, meteoric growth. And I'd be curious, that time where you you launched that first chair, and you said you had about 58 orders, and then it started to grow, like, do you recall roughly how many people you had on Instagram at that point? And how many, maybe you can share how many, where you're at right now and also the size of your business. Because I can imagine you've probably had to scramble quite quickly to build up a team to support yeah. the growth. And what has that looked like? Who was your first hire? What type of people? How many people have you got on your team now? So at the beginning, I think I sold those 58 chairs when I had probably less than 500 followers on Instagram. Like it was really small. My following was very, very small. Um, and now I have 
40,000 followers um, and the business is is a global business. We've got stockists all over the world in, you know, in Norway, in, in France, in New York, um, all over Australia. So we, yeah, so it's a big, it's a, it's, you know, it's a significant business now. Um, I actually, I'm a, I'm a real control freak. I like to do things I think anyone who owns their own business is very protective and or, and has this thought that like no one cares as much about as they do about their business. And so it was very hard for me actually to outsource um, and to hire staff because there's a lot of trust involved and there's a lot of letting go involved, which is also very, very scary, especially if you're someone who is a perfectionist and who likes things to who wants to maintain a certain level of of everything, of quality, of customer service, of of everything. So, and that's me to a T. So it was very difficult for me um, to to find people, you know, well, to not not even to find people, but just to like allow myself to sort of, you know, say I'm going to hire, I'm going to I'm going to accept help. Um, and it's only recently, like, so I actually did a lot more than you would probably could even imagine on my own like I was running the show on my own for a good two two and a half years like it was just me and I did everything um from from drawings to manufacturing to to organizing freight to all the marketing and PR to managing stockers to inventory management to like finance everything like literally everything and um and then I guess the business grew to a point that I could see that I'm just, I'm stuck in my inbox all day responding to customer service and doing all this day-to-day admin stuff that I don't have the time to kind of step out and think about the bigger picture. And I just sort of started feeling like I was missing perhaps opportunities because I wasn't able to give it my full focus because I was too busy doing things that, um, that I really enjoy. I actually really enjoy customer service. I actually really enjoy speaking to the customer um, or, you know, or, or, you know, going back and forth with manufacturers and making amendments and changes and all these things. So all these little processes that I was doing that are really critical to the business, it was hard for me to let go of. Um, but I guess I reached a point where firstly, as the business grew, I needed people who were were more specialists than me, particularly in design, because I don't have technical drawing knowledge or skill. Um, I can show you, I can draw a very rough sketch and I can talk about what I love, but I can't do a drawing for you, like a proper drawing. I can't, I don't, I don't know how to use the software. So I needed someone to step in there pretty quickly because we were growing at a re- we started growing at a very quick pace where we needed to be producing more and designing more and I just couldn't keep up so it was either we kind of grow really slowly and I do everything or we can grow much faster and I accept help and potentially do it better because someone who can do it better than me so my first hire was in the design department and that was um you know like a product um a product lead so someone who can help with all of the design all of the drawings all of the manufacturer like liaising um and that took a huge piece off my off my tray, off my my desk, um, to allow me to sort of give the initial brief and then let someone else deal with the back and forth because there's so much work involved in the back and forth. You know, looking at samples, giving feedback, um, following up like there's, and especially when you've got like you know twenty or fifty items that are all being sampled at the same time, it's a full time job. It's a huge amount of work. So that was my first hire, and then. Um, 
my second hire, which was only recent, um, was someone to help with full sort of um, customer service and project management, and um, and that's another full time role. Um, she's actually sitting across from me right now, <laughs> but she's the be- like honestly like the best thing that's happened for this business. I'm not just saying it because she's next to me, but um, just having someone who you really trust, who's you know who's kind of got you know, who's, who's dedicated to that role, who could do it really well. And I often think she's doing it better than I ever did. Um, someone who could sort of take, um, take that off your chest and take that off your lap and manage all of that. And it's also someone who can manage projects. So if we're doing a roadshow next year, they can sort of help with planning all of that. If we need to book shoots, someone who can book shoots, someone who can just do all of those things that do require creative output. They do require um, a lot of thought and a lot of planning um, and a lot of time. So being able to sort of outsource that and have someone on the team who can look after that um, means that I can suddenly I can focus on bigger things and and also be involved in all of those things because I you know I like to sort of have my input and have my say where where I need to, where I want to give direction, but be able to trust people to sort of run with it and and you know, you know, bring ideas to life for you while you focus on other projects. And so did you hire initially from within your community? Like did you sort of share it on Instagram, we're hiring, that type of thing, or did you go to um via LinkedIn or did you kind of go to an external hiring agency? Um, cause you know, that can be a challenge for a lot of people is like, where do I find these people? Yeah, I was worried about that too. And I was, I ended up putting it out on my website and then advertising it on, on LinkedIn, on, no, not sorry, on Instagram. Um, and I found both of my, but I, I found all my team members through Instagram. So I think that there is something to be said for hiring someone who, is familiar with the brand and who likes the brand. Um, not in every category. So like, you know, um, for example, my warehouse team, I didn't even mention them. So my warehouse team are, are also have been with me for a long time as well. And they're also critical, but in terms of my main sort of full-time hires are my product and customer service, but my warehouse team also, I mean, now they follow the brand and they're involved, but they probably wouldn't have followed the brand unless they work for me. Cause they're not really that are, you know, um, that's not their, area of passion. Um, but yeah, I think that Instagram for me, I was successful in finding excellent candidates through Instagram. I, I did think when I put the ad out, what am I going to do if I don't find someone on Instagram? Because I don't want to put it on seek and get like a million junk applications and have to spend the time going through all of that. So I also thought about being sneaky and poaching people from other businesses, <laughs> if I'm honest, like sort of seeing who's where in other businesses and headhunting because I feel like that's the way really. I mean, I'm not em- embarrassed to say that that is the way that a lot of people find good talent is by headhunting. So I would I would be open to potentially, you know, if I came across someone who was excellent at what they did um, saying, hang on, do you want to come work for me? So I think that's just the way of the world is that people headhunt. So I, you know, I, I think it's tricky. It's, I'm not going to say I'm an expert. I mean, I've made mistakes. I have made hires in the past that haven't worked out. Um, and you know, and I, and there were no warning signs. There was like, if I look back to see why certain hires didn't work out, I can't, I, I, I can't tell you that if I hired them, if I had that process again, now I wouldn't make the same mistake because 
sometimes there are some things that you only sort of figure out over time that someone's not the right fit or whatever it is. But um, it's tricky. I think hiring also for me, I mean, I'm not an HR person. I've never done this before. I've never hired people before. So it's it's also scary. It's it's almost as scary as moving into manufacturing. It's like it's it's a whole unknown territory in terms of how do you judge someone's character? How do you assess what their work ethic is like? How do you um, figure out if you're going to be compatible if they're going to, you know, like, pers- like personality-wise? Like it's just there are so many unknowns. So and I don't know if I have the answer to that yet. I think I've I've been very, very fortunate in that I have found great people. Um, but I also know that I have made some mistakes as well. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what the perfect kind of recipe is just yet. Well, I mean, it's all a journey, isn't it? Um, now, before we get into the final questions, I do have to ask you about marketing and Instagram because, um, first of all, I mean, obviously you've got so much experience, you know, you had your own marketing agency with your brand. I mean, you've talked about that initial, like big surge, have there been other like big tipping points that you can kind of pinpoint with the business where you feel like, oh, when that happened, we went to that next level? Or has it just been like a steady growth since that initial burst out? It's never been cal- calculated or planned in the sense that I need to achieve something to be able to do something else. That's not that's not how I think. Um, I'm very much a, I'm an action person. I don't overthink things. I sort of make decisions based on my gut and common sense. And that's it. Like it's instinct and it's common sense. And I don't overanalyze if an opportunity comes my way and it, or an idea comes my way and it feels good, I will pursue it at any point in time. It doesn't matter where the business is at or isn't at, I'll always kind of go for things that I think sound like a good sort of fit or a good next step for the business. So I would say a lot of the growth and new projects and new things that have happened have happened because I've had an idea and I don't wait for the timing to be right. I don't wait for, you know, anything. I'm just like, it's an idea. Let's do it. Let's do it today. And I'm, you know, I think my team will attest to the fact that if I've got an idea and I love it, we're going to start it today and it's going to be done by next week. So I'm very much like a, I, I'm, I'm quick in terms of like, I, you know, I'm decisive and I'm quick. And if I want to do something and I think it's a great idea, I'll just do it and it'll be done by next week. I'm very efficient as well. So there's no mucking around. I'm certainly not someone who um, spends too much time with my head in a business plan. Like I kind of just I really lead by heart. I really lead by definitely common sense and like things have to make sense like on a spreadsheet and, you know, it has to make sense. But um, I, I'll, I'll go as quickly as I can in terms of the business will, will grow and develop as quickly as my ideas come, as quickly as opportunities come. Like that's kind of how I think. There's no, I'm not going to ever say no because I'm not ready for something. Like I'll, I'll say yes and I'll get ready. Like, you know, like I heard um, this quote and I, it's just like it's exactly how I think. So I loved it. It was um, um, people who are something about business people or entrepreneurs and it said that they um, work out how to use a parachute on their way down. So they jump <laughs> and then they figure out how to like take out the parachute as they're sort of falling. And that's very much how I work as well. And I think probably in my personal life and professional life I'm very much I have a goal. I've got a dream. 
Um, it doesn't make sense to any, everyone else is like, what, how, you've got no experience, how are you going to do that? It's too big, it's too this, it's too that, how are you going to afford it? And I'm just like, watch me and it's done by next week, you know, because I really do, I think if there's a will, there's a way and I've got one hell of a will. So if I want something done um, or if I've got an idea that I'm really excited about and I want to I make it happen, um, we just, I just start. I just start it and and I figure it out even if it's completely outside of any scope that I've ever worked within before. I'll just, I'll figure it out. I'm a very resourceful person. Um, I'll just, I'll figure it out. Like I'll literally like give me a job and I'll figure out how to do it. Like I'm that kind of person that doesn't, I don't, nothing's, I don't make excuses. Like if I want to do it, I'll do it. And there's not going to be, I'm not going to make any excuses to not do it. Have you leaned on any kind of like business mentors, coaches, or just other people in the industry that you kind of make a point of trying to stay connected to so that you can kind of workshop? I mean, you, I guess you've spoken a little bit about having these conversations with other people in the industry that you are maybe going to work with. I mean, is that like a dialogue that you keep open? Um, I actually wish I had a mentor. I don't have a mentor and I have I have at times really wished I did because I wished I do because there are times when, you know, you reach sort of critical points of growth and for example, hiring, hiring staff recently for me was, I, I wanted some advice on like, how do you make good decisions regarding hiring? Or if it's, you know, moving to a bigger warehouse and working out the cost, um, you know, like if it's if it's worthwhile from a cost perspective and how to best sort of manage, you know, getting a new inventory system, which is a huge project. Like there are all these big things that are that are so out of my um, knowledge, you know, like they're just such new things for me that I often have wished that I had someone who has a bigger business than mine, who has done something similar, who I could sort of call and talk to and ask how they've kind of um, managed similar crossroads or questions or issues. But I don't have, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest, I don't have anyone like that who I can ask, um, which I think is a shame. I think that it would be a huge benefit if I did. And I know that even when I have really small conversations with other people who own businesses who are not in the same industry even or who you know, who just, you know, even share sort of small tidbits. I, I benefit so much from those kind of conversations because just the smallest bits of advice, the smallest insight into how someone else has done something can, can, can make, you know, can make you avoid a lot of mistakes if you kind of know that. So, um, I mean, my social group are not business owners. My friends are not, you know, they're just, you know, normal people who have normal sort of jobs and do what they do. So, I mean, I would love to be able to sort of lean in and connect more with other business women um, and men um, who, who have experience beyond what I have and who could sort of share some wisdom and insights. And I'm always sort of seeking it out. I'm always looking for it. Um, I know that I do it for others. So I hopefully karma will come back around and someone will do it for me because I know that I'm always trying to help others who are, you know, trying to get somewhere near where I am perhaps or a different journey, but like look up to me and where, what I've achieved. And I'm always very forthright with forthcoming with, um, you know, information or sharing the journey. Um, but no, I haven't found anyone and I wish I did. So I'm putting it out to the universe. I would love to find um, a mentor or someone who who has kind of tread this path before and because um, there are so many new and unknowns that I just kind of really am blind. I go in blind. I go in just based on my limited sort of what I think is the right thing to do. Um, and, yeah, I think that I think it would be so helpful. 
So when you started, you had your Instagram underneath your name, I presume, because it's still under that name. Was there any, ever a point where you thought, when I start this business, I want it to have its own separate brand identity? Or did you always want it to be underneath your name? And did you create your account very much with a view that this is going to be where I share originally, you know, these collected finds and curated finds? Was it always about the business? And do you, are you still the one that is creating the content? What's your approach with Instagram? How do you use, how do you decide what you're going to share? You know, how the language, the, the tone of voice, all of those kind of, I guess, brand um, touch points, you know, to, to create, you know, the Rachel Dunnath brand. Well, I think that the success, I think that I, my strength is in marketing and in sales and in public relations. I mean, that's what my background is in. That's what I did for like 15 years. And I, that's where I am very comfortable in that space because I sort of know the ropes and it's a very familiar territory to me. I also think that I instinctively have a good sense of what works and what doesn't work from a, from a marketing perspective. Um, I have had people approach me and say, can I take, can I, you know, would you want to hire me to do your social media? And I've always said one thing I will never let go of is my social media because I think that it's so important that your social media is a reflection of who you are in all, you know, like in and, and a really authentic place to connect with people. And I think that that's a big strength of my business is that there's no pre, you know, written out captions or lines or planned. It's literally what's in my head without any sort of, you know, second thought, I just type it up, press post. Like it's very authentic. It's very just me. And so the voice that you're seeing, the the tone, the words, the the phrases, it's all exactly how I talk. Um, and I think that works really, I think it works really well. I think that you connect with people in a, in a really strong way when you're just very authentically, unapologetically yourself. Um, especially I think I think the more you try and edit yourself and um, polish yourself, the more disconnected people feel. And I think that's just human nature in terms of talking to people. I think the more open you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more, you know, even with all your quirks or the weird ways you say things or, you know, your expressions or your energy, whatever it is, I think that the way you connect with other people is through being very genuinely yourself in all your quirkiness and all your uniqueness and I see that as a really critical part of building a brand is is connecting with people and the way to connect with people is to be very authentic and so for me it's always been about being authentic and I know that I put stuff out and like you know my siblings or my friends who mean well will say to me oh my god Rach you're being too you this is too you you're gonna like scare people off or you're not scared but you're gonna you know it's not professional or whatever they'll say to me and I'll just say I just say watch and learn like you know you're yours you know some people are scared to be themselves because they're afraid of that reject of rejection or people not liking that personality or whatever it is but I and not everyone will like anyone's personality I mean that's just the reality of of life but I think that the any profiles that I follow that I feel connected to and that I look forward to their content are people who I feel like I'm talking to a person not to some you know boring 
you know, like crazy sort of, you know, like machine that's kind of just copywriter who's just writing out boring lines. Like, I, you know, I just I think that people connect with real and I think that that's been a real um, a real kind of success story of my business is my kind of commitment to keeping all of my language and all of my posts very authentic. I try and share the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to cry and talk about, you know, that something broke or I'm not going to, you know, like I don't, um, you know, I, I'm obviously I'm not going to share every single detail of my life. So I don't think everyone needs to know or cares about everything, but certainly in terms of my passion for, for what I do, um, my passion for the pieces that I, that I sell, um, and for the business, I think that my, like my family values and what's important to me. Um, I think that there's absolutely no harm in sharing that because I think people connect with that and you find a lot of like kindred spirits and people who, who become fans of the brand because they're fans of you as a, as a person. And I think people become fans of a person when they feel connected to someone's authentic self. So I think that's pretty much what I'm trying to say is that I think that it's that, you know, even even my feed, like some people plan out their whole feeds that it looks a certain way and really pretty and the pictures are all in a certain order and I'm just like, no way. Like I feel like if I started doing that, it's just I, I would just lose them at motivation to keep doing it. Like it's just so boring. Like I just kind of, you know, I just, I you know, my approach to posting on social media is very spontaneous. It's very genuine. Um, it's very, you know, it's just how I, how I'm, what I'm feeling that day, what I feel like showing that day, what I'm excited about that day. And I think that people kind of sense that and connect with that. So what about the time suck element of social media then? Do you get pulled in with that? And and how, you know, somebody who is running this business that, you know, is, is thriving um, and, you know, how does your, your day look like? Like, do you have to set boundaries around time? You know, what what's the day in the life look like for you? What's like a you know, an average kind of week. Can you sort of just share a little bit on that before we kind of go into these last questions? Well, from a social media perspective, some days, like often on a Monday, because it's my busiest, it's like just like catching up on the weekend. Um, I don't even go on social media because I'm so busy. And then it will come to like three or four o'clock and I'll think, oh my God, I haven't posted anything today. And often I'll just say, well, then I'm not going to, if I don't feel like posting, I'm not going to post, you know, because I don't want to put something out because, and you literally see it. Like if I post because I need to post, and I just, my heart's not in it. And I'm just like, beautiful chair in the summertime or whatever. I'll get like zero likes. I'll get zero engagement. I really think people feel it. They're like, okay, she doesn't, she's not in it. Her heart's not in this post. We don't want to see it, you know? So I often, I would rather post when I'm really feeling like connecting with people, when I'm really feeling excited or passionate or, or whatever it is about something. And I get much better engagement because people sense that feeling behind it. So I, my posting is it's part of how I express myself during the day. I don't, I'm not sure how, it's, you know, it's sort of, it's become like a habit almost that I, I see something and I'm excited by it or I'm, you know, and I'm like, I have to share it, you know, like that's kind of same as you would sort of take a photo and share it with like on WhatsApp with your sister or your mom or whoever it is that you talk to a lot on WhatsApp. For me, my Instagram community is like that. So if I see something, even if it's totally random and I'm excited by it or I have any sort of like emotion or um, feeling about it, I'll always think it's almost like a reflex. I'll almost think I want to share this. Like I want to put this on and I'm not going to spend hours thinking of a caption, not at all. I literally will write like 
stunning exclamation mark exclamation mark or whatever like it doesn't even matter like for me I don't even I'm not self-conscious at all about what I share and what I post and and what I and what I write I'm very much just unfiltered in that sense um and it hasn't bitten me in the bum yet hopefully it won't (laughs) bite me in the bum but um I I'm very kind of it's it's very it's very much a natural sort of part of the day now like I think you know I'm kind of like where's my phone I need to I need to find my phone if I'm like with the kids and I'm doing something and something's like oh my god that's so epic I'm like looking for my phone because I really want to share it you know so it's it's really become a very like a natural part of the day it's not it's not put on or scheduled in or anything like that in terms of a week's do you mean like a week's routine with social media yeah, or do I mean, you mean? Like, well, no, like, I mean, I guess within the business. So, you know, like you mentioned, you're, you know, you've got four okay. children and, you know, are you doing the school drop-offs and pickups and are you working in the evenings because you're doing that? Or are you like, no, I just work nine till three or whatever it is. Like, what does your, your kind of average, you know, for want of a better word, week look like and day look like? So, Um, I drop my kids off at school every day, except for maybe like one day a week, my husband will do it if he can like manage to go in late or whatever it is. So I'll drop the kids off to school. Um, my kids are at three different schools. So I leave home at about quarter to eight in the morning and then I get back home by quarter to nine. And then I have like 15 minutes, like make some breakfast or like clean up a bit make myself a coffee, whatever it is. And then I sit down and, um, I start with I start with looking at reports from the day before. So I always, I'm always very on top of like reporting and like where we're sitting and, um, you know, that sort of things. So that's how I start my day generally is reporting. And then I kind of go through my inbox and it's just, you know, it's my inbox is now that I'm not, that I've got um, people on my team who look after the general inbox. My inbox is quite a heavy inbox like every email is like a big task to do when every email is something quite serious that I need so it's like a lot of projects in my inbox to do so I go through my inbox and I also have meetings with my team throughout the day if they need me or if we've got a scheduled meeting um, sometimes there are projects they're working on so there's a meeting for that or there's um, a call with someone or with a, a new stockist or with a you know, an overseas contact that we're working on something with. So there's always stuff scheduled in. Wednesday's my day with my daughter. So I have a home from kinder on a Wednesday and I try really, really hard to like keep that day as as empty as possible. And I'll be honest, it really hasn't worked very well for me. Um I wish it I wish it worked better, but but having your own business, even when you've got staff, even when you've got people to help you, sometimes there's just too much work to to take that day off and so I I'm sad to say that I've actually probably 50% of the year I've had to book her in to kinder for that extra day because I couldn't have a home like tomorrow for example she'll be at kinder even though it's our Wednesday um because I just um I can't fit my de- my work week into four days even with help like even with staff it's just a lot um there's a lot to do so but then again, last Wednesday I had her and it was, it was a pleasure. Like I love, I love spending the day with her, um, and just hanging out. So I try as often as I can, but the reality is that it doesn't always work that way. And, um, you know, it's, I find that with being a mum and working, it's sort of, especially when it's your own business and it's a busy business, you can do both, but I, I, I feel like for myself, I'm not very good at multitasking. Um, I could, I, you know, I could do one or the other at one time. And if I'm trying to do both at the same time, 
I'm doing one not very well. So if I'm sort of responding to a message and I've got my kids with me, I'm being, I'm not being a great mum or I'm not writing a very nice, you know, not, not a very articulate message. Like it's one or the other. Something's got to give. So um, as soon as the kids, the kids, um, I've got a, a manny who brings my kids home from school every day. So um, that's something that I've, that I've just had to do because otherwise I've got to leave to school pick up at three o'clock. So I've got a really short day. So I've got someone who does the whole after school pickup. So the kids walk in the door at 4.30 and as soon as they walk in the door at 4.30, you know, my computer's shut and I'm with the kids and I don't work the rest of the night unless there's something crazy urgent, but I really try not to. I even put my phone next to my bed in the charger. I don't even look at it um, until the next morning. Then I even switch it off. I switch into sleep mode. Um, so I'm not sort of contactable. I don't even, I don't even want to see notifications. Like I just don't want to see anything. Um, because once you start seeing things for me anyway, it's like the to-do list starts building up in my brain and I'm like, oh my God, I've got to do that. And I start worrying and my head goes to work and I just don't, I just, I want to be able to like have a good night's sleep and be with my family and look after my own sort of physical mental health as well and not be on call 24 seven. So I try and sort of create boundaries. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's it's a constant work in progress. But I'm I'm kind of I feel like I'm getting a bit better at it. Yeah, no, I can, I can relate to a lot of that. I I very much I'm similar in the sense that like I'm either working or I'm with the kids. I just I don't like that if you know yeah. and and you know I, I probably work more than some other people who like you know aren't working as such. But but when I'm with my kids, I'm just like completely present. So that works for me. Yeah. Um, there's always, you know, it's always a juggle. All right, let's get into the final. I won't keep you too much longer. I've, I've loved having, I could chat to you for hours and hours, but I won't keep you for any longer. All right. So let's get into the last 10, which is number one is which five words best describe you? Oh, um, I'll say I'm very honest. I'm very driven. Um, I don't take myself too seriously. I've got a big heart. I love who I love a lot. Um, and I'm very reliable. Like if I say I'll do something, I'll do something. What's the best lesson that you've learned in business or life? One of the best. Lots and lots. I would say maybe the one that kind of just pops into my head now is when one door closes, another one opens. And I think that that has as hard a lesson it is to learn. It couldn't be more true. I've had times in my business and in my personal life, but when, when like there's been a no for something or you've had a rejection or someone said no to something that you really want, or you just, you know, you haven't been able to pursue something that you really wanted. And it's been really kind of like devastating at the time. Um, but kind of just giving it a bit of time and the way that your brain or my brain kind of works to like find a way around it or find another way is just quite amazing because you end up sort of opening another door for yourself or someone opens a door for you, but I'm totally pro opening a door for yourself. Um, that is actually much, much better. And that has, you know, has, and when you look back, it was actually, it was for the best, you know, like it really was, it was, you know, sure. If that would have happened, it would have been amazing and great and this and that, but I feel like there's, you know, there's always another way and there's always, you know, things kind of find a way of working themselves out. What's been one of your best decisions? To start this business. 
A hundred percent. I think that it was, it was really a whim, if I'm honest. Like I started on a whim. It was a Sunday morning. I was just, you know, feeling inspired to just kind of do what I want to do. You know, one of those kind of you only live once sort of like real kind of aha moments. And I just started it. And I am so proud of myself for pushing through and following and kind of keeping on going, even when the going went like went tough. Like I just kept on, I just kept on pushing. And I'm really, really proud of myself for for having the self-belief and for having that gumption, like kind of that real sort of like, I'm just gonna do it and and doing it. So I'm really proud of myself for for doing this. Who inspires you? This might be a funny answer, but I'm actually inspired by people who are very successful in their fields, but who are very, very kind people. I'm I'm inspired by people who have reason because of their, whether it's their status or their achievements to become quite, you know, snobby or not very nice or not very personal, personable. Um, But people who maintain that sort of kindness and realness despite their success um, has always, even before I started this business has always been, I've always looked at people who I thought, oh my God, you have so much reason, which is not a nice thing to say that no one has reason to be not, not nice, but some people, you know, are very sort of, they're very, you know, they're very beautiful or they're very successful or they're very anything. And often people, not often, but you know, Sometimes people like that are have a bit of a an, an air to them that's kind of a bit like unaccessible, and I've always loved it when people, I think, have it all. So they've got the success and they're they've got everything going for them, but they still are very down to earth and and really kind and have time for other people. And I've always sort of looked up to the few people that I know that are like that. I'm just like I want to be like that. It's beautiful. What are you passionate about? I'm passionate about not making excuses, doing what you want to do. Um, you know, I, I'm very passionate about we only live once, it's one life, and just do what you love, like just live your best life. Like I, I, I believe so strongly that regardless of any obstacles or any hardship or any um, anything that can kind of get in the way regardless like in spite of that like just fight for your best life um and I'm very passionate about not making excuses not saying yeah but I've got this issue but I can't because of that but I've got this I'm just like nah I don't want to hear that like I want it like there's no excuses like I say to my my kids like every single day I always say to them I'm like there is a solution for every problem like every problem has a solution and you know there's no there's like I just think that you know like just just go for it. Just live your best life. Just, you know, just kind of create, create your dream, live your dream. You know, you're only here once on this, on this planet. So just do it your way and do it in a way that, you know, fills your heart and fulfills like your, you know, your, your calling or whatever it is that just makes you live happily. Even if it's, even if it's just doing nothing, even if it's just kind of being happy as, you know, someone who lives by themselves with their cat. Like it doesn't matter. It's just if that's what makes you happy, do it. Like just kind of live your best life, whatever that looks like to you. Yep, beautiful. Um, what dream, I'm curious to know this answer. What dream do you still want to fulfill? 
I'm sure there's quite a few. I think for me, the dream that I want to fulfill that I'm sort of chipping away at every single day is I want to create, sorry, I'm actually going to like tear up because I really feel so strongly about this, but I want to create a, a connected family. I want my children and my husband, I want us as a family unit to, to evolve and grow. And as the kids grow older, I want to stay really connected um, and a really loving family. So for me, that's my dream that I work at with all of my energy every day is to teach my kids um, just how precious each other are, how precious it is to have family. I try and model it to them with my relationship, with my family, with my siblings, with my parents, um, and just to sort of really put into them that really strong sort of family value that we are each other's number one allies, that, you know, we're each other's best friends for life and that they're each other's best friends for life. And I mean, my dream is to be like a gray-haired grandma one day and to have, you know, all my kids and grandkids and whatever it is and their partners around the table and just to, you know, just to just to, to watch them and to see that they're connected to each other and that they love each other, that they care for each other, that they're very much in each other's lives. Like I just want my, I just, for me, um, family and connectedness is, is my number one sort of priority beyond anything else. And so to raise my, my kids and my family and myself and my partner and my husband as well, all of us just as a unit to sort of just have a really strong bond is, is my biggest kind of dream and goal that I am working at as we speak. <laughs> I'm always working at it. That, that really is beautiful. Um, okay. So what are you reading? Do you have anything on your bedside table? Do you have a coffee table book that you currently going through? What, what are you reading at the moment? Um, on my beds, I have a book that I've, I'm reading now for the third time. I just, it's like my little, my little Bible. It's called The Way of Integrity by Martha Beck, and it's like the best book I've ever read in my life. Um, it just kind of keeps you on track. I just, I mean, its message is very, it's excellent, but the message is pretty much just listening to your truth and following your truth. Um, and that's pretty much what the book says in a nutshell. And I just find it's a really good reminder to like really trust your instincts, to trust your gut, to like keep, to not kind of veer off track, to sort of stay really committed to to your own integrity. Um, and I, yeah, I've read it, I've read it already a couple of times and I'm sort of like, I kind of dip into it from time to time. I don't, I don't read a huge amount, um, especially unless I'm on holiday or something like that. So I don't have a lot of time, but when I do, I like to sort of dip into that book because I find it's very, um, motivating and encouraging and it, it kind of reminds, it, it's a good reminder. Yeah, I've got that book too, actually. It's, yeah, it's a good one. Um, what are you listening to? Do you like to listen to podcasts? Otherwise, um, do you, I don't know, listen to music? What, what do you like to listen to? I actually, because I have such a noisy household, I love to listen to nothing, to silence. Like I find that when I drive in my car, I put the music off. I can't think of a better sound at this point in time in my life than just like nothing, than silence, than like the birds chirping in the backyard. I love quiet. I'm really listening to quiet. I'm trying to listen to quiet at the moment. Um, I think that there are seasons of life and right now I've got four little kids at home and it's very noisy and I'm constantly listening to them all talk to me at the same time. So when I get a moment of um, 
to myself, I'll always choose quiet over anything else because I just kind of just having that time to just like process my own thoughts, my own feelings, have that peaceful time is um, is what I need right now. Like for me right now, I'm just like a silent retreat just sounds like the absolute, <laughs> you know, dream to go there for a few days and just not have no one talk to me and not talk to anyone for a few days. I feel like that's kind of what I'm what I'm trying to listen to at the moment. I can completely relate. I've got like a basically like a 10 to 15 year gap in music because when my, my son is eldest son is 15 and during that time it was like, I just couldn't like only just now. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, like I've got no I idea know. like what music's out there or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's funny. Um, okay. Yeah. Finally, what piece, of, <laughs> what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I would say keep pushing for your dreams and don't get discouraged or distracted by, by no's or by negativity or by people saying that it's not possible. Um, I think that that is something that I would definitely say, especially at particular points in my life where I've sort of reached um, dead ends or really difficult circumstances that have kind of made it very, that have sort of almost said to me, you can't do that. Like it's not going to happen for you. Um, like even around fertility, um, around this business, around relationships, around my home. Like there are so many very personal instances in my life where everything has kind of shown me that, no, you can't do this. Um, but I've always just had this fire in my belly that has said, you can't say no to me and I'll find a way. And um, I think that has stood me in really good stead. And it's, I mean, I, I almost, I would give myself that advice, but I feel a bit like I feel sad because I know what I've, you know, like it's not easy to reach that point where you have to push through really difficult things. Um, but I guess I'd say to myself, it'll be worth it. Like it'll be, it'll be worth it. Like keep pushing through and don't stop pushing through and it'll be worth your while because everything will work out beautifully. Like, I think that's what I'd say to my younger self. Yeah. So good. So good. Rachel, thank you so much for being so open, so honest, so generous with your time. I think I've got a lot of value out of this. I think anyone who's listening to, I just know people are going to love just, yeah, just getting that real, like behind the scenes, look at your business, how you've grown it. Um, you know, I think you deserve every success. You clearly have put your heart and soul into it. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's very inspiring to see what you've created. So I really appreciate you coming and sharing your story on imprint. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love, I've loved chatting to you too. And I've loved the questions. It's been a really good talk. All of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode. And I really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review, as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media. If you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded. 
and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint. Imprint.